a couple weeks ago I told you that we're going to have a meeting with our landlord about you know, seeing it being extended or at least that those are those conversations are still going on. So it's it it it's looking a little positive. So that, that's good. Also, uh, we are hoping this week to get our civil plans back done by the civil engineer so we can turn those into the city, which is the thing that allows us to do our site work that enables us to start moving dirt and sidewalks and, and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully we can break ground and get moving. So to warn you about what's coming up is right before that happens, we're going to do a four-week refocus on what was called Planting Roots. It's this journey we all went on to you know, refocus us on stewardship of where God wants us to be, but take us to where we think God is calling us to as a church together. So do a little refocus of that. But if you could, uh, this week, if you think about praying, if you pray, uh, pray that uh, the civil engineers would actually get those plans done. And that would be just awesome. It'd be awesome. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Look like this. On the inside, there's some notes that go deeper as well as some questions to take you deeper into what we talk about. Today, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Events and Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes versus questions, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. I want you to stand with me. You're reading of God's Word. This is Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us to be a people who understand the things you have done in our lives, that you have brought us peace. I ask that tomorrow we would remember the people in our country who have died to give us the freedom that we have. But ultimately, we would remember that your son died to bring us ultimate freedom as well. And so I ask that though we are thankful tomorrow, we would always remember and live in the grace that your gospel provides. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in our series going through the book of Acts, the first half of the book of Acts. This is week 18. Last week we talked about when a church fails at certain things, when leadership fails. Today that's going to move into the idea of God bringing his peace into our lives and how we begin to live that out. Uh, the series is going to take us approximately, uh, at the time that I wrote this message, I had 34 weeks. I changed it to 37, now it's 36 so right now, 36 weeks, this is, so we're, this is like our halfway point, if that's true. So bam, you are halfway through. Uh, we do this series because we want all of you to know what we believe uh, the early church was started to become and what we should be striving towards. By the end of the book of Acts, you will hopefully have 30-plus different characteristics of what a church should emulate and live. But again, every church struggles in certain areas. If you're element, we struggle in all of them. Okay. You will never find the perfect church. The reason why that is is because you go to it, okay? And you are messed up, and you are not perfect, and your sin's just going to screw it up. For some reason, a lot of people think, I'm just going to go find that church that has it all together. They have it all figured out. If you ever find a place like that, let me know. We'll shut down Element, and we will all go there. But then we'll mess it up because we're there. So whatever. Uh, we also assume that a lot of you will not live the rest of your lives in Santa Maria, and at some point you will hopefully be looking for another church to be a part of. And we want you to be part of a community that is loving Jesus and, and taking Jesus' name forward to the whole earth, especially beginning in the neighborhoods in which you live. We want to encourage you to live all of your lives on mission, and hopefully you will be able to at some point think back to this series to look for certain things in a church to be a part of. Again, Hopefully churches are striving for these things. We don't always do them perfectly, but hopefully we have that Christ-centered goal. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. 
In Acts, we have seen the Spirit empower people to be His witnesses because, again, it's all about Jesus. We have seen incredible victories of what the church has been doing by preaching the gospel. We have seen the persecution and the rejoicing in the midst of that persecution. Uh, and last week we saw, I said, as the failure of how even a church run by the apostles can screw some things up by seeming to show favoritism. Now, how they solved this last week, we're going to briefly hit this before we move on because it all kind of goes together, is they solved this by asking an entire meeting of the entire assembly to come together and they ask for names to help acts chapter 6 verse 3 says therefore brothers this is what they said pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty now this is interesting on three different levels number one they asked the disciples this would be the whole community this would be everybody coming together and saying so who would be good for this job to ask them to do so that's like, it's not just you going, oh, my buddy Steve would be good. It's like, would everybody agree your buddy Steve would be good, or just you think your buddy Steve's any good at it? So it's everybody coming together and kind of agreeing what this would be like. When the apostles chose someone to add to their number, the apostles chose them themselves. But here they asked the entire assembly. Second thing is that the criteria for choosing these men were they were men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. That doesn't mean they were good at building things or they, or they knew how to even necessarily lead a Bible study and know it back, backwards and forwards. It's that they lived what they said they believed first. That's what it means. The main issue is character. When we get to Stephen today, this is going to make a lot of sense in his life. You will see why. This is not about special talents or special abilities. The reference in the Greek to wisdom is being able to discern right from wrong and be able to do the right thing. Not just say what the right thing is. Like, I, you can post all day on Facebook about the right thing, but if you never live it out, you're not actually living in wisdom. I mean, you know how rare it is to find someone who can actually live out the things that they say they believed? Like, sometimes people will come to me, and they will complain about somebody else. If it's ever been you, you've probably heard me say five words to you. These are the five words I say. Did you talk to them? <laughs> no, I'm talking to you. Okay. Go talk. Did you talk to them? That's character. Character is not trying to find someone else to fix your relational mess. Although sometimes they can help when they step in. But character is understanding the gospel in your life, that God has rescued you. God has redeemed you. God has called you home. And you take that Christ-centered perspective, and you sometimes you have those hard conversations and relationships around you. It's being able to discern the right thing to do. And the right thing is usually very simple. It's just really hard on our pride. The third thing is all the names that were given to the apostles were Greek names. They were what were known as Hellenists. The complaint that has arisen last week because of what's going on was, was raised by the Hellenists. So the disciples choose Hellenists to fix it, to not show favoritism. Craig Keener writes this. He says, those with political power generally repressed complaining minorities, meaning those with power like shut up you whiners. He said, here the apostles hand the whole system over to the complaining minority. Now, this is not a case of what is called moose turd pie. Have you ever heard Mr. Okay, don't be afraid, offended at the word turd, okay? Uh, way back when, when people used to work on railways and stuff, apparently when you complained about things, you got put in charge of that thing. And so uh, there's a story I read from this guy once who talked about how he got put in charge of the cook cart because they were complaining about the food, and they go, fine, you get to be the cook. He's like, dang it. And so one day he's out traipsing in the woods, and he looks down, there's gigantic moose poop on the ground, and he gets an idea. I'm going to make a moose turd pie. 
So he takes it back down to the cook car. He makes his pie all pretty and nice, and he puts it out for dessert. He's just waiting for the first hint of a complaint to come up because he's going, you're going to be So he puts it, and this big guy comes walking in, takes a big old slice of the moose turd pie, puts it down, and takes a big old bite. And the guy, like, throws down his fork, and he's all, my goodness, that is moose turd pie. And everybody's looking at him, and he goes, it's good, though. Okay. This is not a case of where you complain, you get put in charge of it. It's a genuine concern that all the widows would be taken care of. How they know they would be taken care of? Because these Hellenist Greek followers of Jesus were men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. Up front, can you say that about yourself? Can you say that about you? Full of spirit and the wisdom. Have, have you ever looked at something not being done and complained about it, but not been willing to do it yourself? I mean, ask, you know, can you say these things about yourself? Now, one of these men chosen to serve in this way is a guy named Stephen. Luke probably knew him personally because he writes about him in this way. Acts 6, verse 8, this is where we start our section today. says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And what you will see over the next chapter, over this chapter and the next chapter, is uh, Luke is going to weave together what Jesus did and what Stephen did together. Stephen is one of those seven men full of good repute. And so he's going to show the parallels between the death of Jesus and the death of Stephen. Because it shows what Jesus said. In this world, you're going to have trouble. They're going to treat you like they treated me. And what you will see is Stephen is treated just like Jesus was treated. It shows you they're living out the gospel in their lives in the midst of the culture. Stephen, next week, he's going to give a sermon. It might have been his first. It was most definitely his last because of all these escalating tensions between the followers of Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. In Acts chapter 4 through Acts chapter 7, there are three trials that takes place. And Stephen's trial brings this crisis to a head because they're going to kill him. At this point, when after his death, a lot of people are going to flee out of the city of Jerusalem. But that's what God told them to do all along. But they refused. They were like, oh, no, we like being here. We like the apostles teaching us. We're a great small group. We don't want to invite anybody in. We always just want to stay with us. And God's like, no, you need to go out and be involved in evangelism outside of this place. The persecution that comes at the death of Stephen leads to more churches being planted and more people being evangelized. So on the back end, we see what God was doing. In the midst of it, they didn't like it too much. But this is how the church moves from being one one church in one little city to being one church that spreads over the entire face of the earth. One universal church centered on Jesus. After Stephen and his death, the book of Acts is going to begin to move away from the city of Jerusalem until in Acts chapter 13, which will be our stopping point in the series, by the way. It will focus on the Apostle Paul and his messages to the Gentiles, which is mostly all of us. And so the first peril you, you see between Jesus and Stephen is that there is this disagreement over the gospel of what God's kingdom is meant to be and what God is doing in the world and the grace of God. Acts chapter 6, verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So these synagogues are places of prayer and worship. They disagree with Stephen. They get other people to disagree with them and eventually leads to Stephen before this thing called the council. We'll look at that in just a minute. And because you have these groups of men who run the synagogues, they're like little churches. They're very angry because they don't want to lose their power. Jesus is always about trying to unify people around himself. What these synagogues are doing is they're separating people. They're trying to keep everybody separate in their own little group. Now the text lists five different groups here, but in Jerusalem alone, during this time, it is rumored that there were upwards of 480 
80 different little synagogues like this, all for different people. They're continually dividing people. Now, the ones listed here, they're probably all Jews. They're returning to Jerusalem from this thing called the diaspora, which is the Jewish distribution. But you have the freedmen. Okay, so the freedmen, these are probably Jewish slaves that were freed. And so they were able to purchase their freedom. They were let go from service. And it's hard for us to comprehend this because of how slavery was perpetrated in the U.S. In the U.S., less than 0.05% of slaves were ever freed willingly, ever. But in the time of Acts, slaves over 30 years of age were typically released. And they were released with Roman citizenship. That made their lives a lot better than it would have been without. And so they go to what was called this, this, uh, the Freedmen's Synagogue. They get to wear a little hat that's called the Freedmen's Cap. It showed that you were actually free. Your status was lower than somebody born free, but you, know, you were still a citizen. The next group is the Cyrenians. These are people who came from Cyrene. See how it makes sense like that? Okay, this is from northern Africa. It's on the seacoast. It it's kind of remote, but it butts up to the desert between Egypt and Africa. Uh, when Jesus goes to the cross and he's been beaten so bad and lost so much blood, he can't make it all the way up the hill. A guy named Simon from Cyrene helps him carry his cross. He's from this area. In Acts chapter 13, you'll meet a guy named Lucius. He is a teacher in Antioch, also from this area. The next group is called the Alexandrians. Where do you think they're from? Yeah, see, see, the answer isn't always Jesus, you know, it's great. They're, they're very great. Uh, then you have the next group called the Cilicians. Don't mistake that with the Princess Bride and the Sicilians. Inconceivable, right? Geographically, it's on a high road between Syria and the West. It's the native country of the Apostle Paul. And the last group they talk about in here is the Asians. That's not meant to sound racist at all, okay? It's just the Asians. Asia is a whole area. You can't just think Japan or Korea or China. Uh, what it is is it's probably the group that the, that the book of Revelation was written to in the area of Asia Minor. And so that's kind of those people up there. All these join together and they go after Stephen. And Luke is making a parallel about this because these device groups, kind, they come together and they go after Jesus as well. Who comes together to go after Jesus? Well, you have the country of Rome itself. Rome would say anything that disrupts Rome is a threat to Rome, so it needs to go away. So Rome goes after Jesus. You have the crowds in Jerusalem. The crowds in Jerusalem think, we want this Messiah, this political leader to show up, to destroy Rome, put us back in, our, in a place to lead a revolt. That's what we want, and Jesus isn't going to be that guy. So they go after Jesus. You have Pilate. Pilate rules over Jerusalem and Judea on behalf of Caesar. Uh, Pilate, from all the early writings, really hates his job. Philo the historian said Pilate's rule was marked by bribery, insults, robbery, supreme cruelty, executions without a trial, and a furious, vindictive temper. And we say, boy, we're glad politicians are different today. He goes after Jesus. Then you have the chief priest, the guys in charge of the temple. The chief priest would have been fine if Jesus would have come in because the people loved him and said, oh, I'll just be part of the temple system. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to do that. So they go after him. You have the Pharisees. The Pharisees are mostly teachers of the law. They want to purify Israel. They're the back to the Bible club. And not that Jesus didn't love the scriptures, but they elevated the scriptures over the grace and the kingdom of God. So Jesus wouldn't be on their team. So they went after Jesus. You have the zealots. The zealots are like, Rome is evil. We're going to burn it all down mr robot we're gonna burn it all down we're gonna take on Rome, and jesus wouldn't be part of them so they go after jesus you have the essenes these are the doomsdayers like you know they load up on ammo and go not really ammo they load up on their books and go live up in the in the hills and say get away from everything it's all evil and jesus is like no you must be someone who lives the gospel in the world that's there so they went after jesus then you have the crowds in the temple at passover 
This is when Jesus dies. It's the biggest holiday of the Jewish calendar. There's lots of feasting and partying and drinking. And during this celebration, Pilate says, I can let Jesus go to you as a gesture of goodwill. Or I can release this other guy over here who's a murderer, this Barabbas. And what does the crowd say? Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Why? Because Jesus wouldn't be part of any of these groups. And Barabbas, though he was a murderer, he was still willing to kill Romans. So, like, we'll take that guy. We'll we'll go with that guy. And then, ultimately, you have Caesar. Now, Caesar probably had never even heard of Jesus while he was living. But Caesar is the ruler of Rome. And anything that disrupts the distribution of grain, like maybe an uprising in Israel, would have caused him problems. So, essentially, Caesar goes after him as well. Now, obviously, in all these things, Jesus is in control at all. He brings about his crucifixion in the right way at the right time, just like Jesus is in control of what happens to Stephen. And Stephen knows this. But Luke is helping you see the picture of what's going on. There is an event that's going to take place with the death of Stephen that brings about the church going out into the world, just like with Jesus' death and ultimate resurrection. There is an event that caused all people to be in relationship with God again. We can trust him. Our sins can be forgiven. We can walk and live with him. There's this huge event. At Stephen's death, there's another huge event. It pushes the church out of Jerusalem to go and live on mission. And I hope none of that's too distracting, but there's a method to what Luke is doing here. He's talking about how you can live in the same kind of peace and wisdom that Stephen lived in. In Acts 6, 9, it says, These groups rose up and disputed with Stephen. What does Stephen do when they rise up and dispute with him? Stephen will defend his position. He doesn't say, oh, it's okay, all roads lead to the same place, believe whatever you want. He lays out the gospel and the truth. And he does it in such a way that they can't withstand the wisdom in which he does it. Acts 6.10 says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And some people hear that and they think, oh, well, that means I've got to read like 100 books and know the answers to every question. I've got to study biology and know the difference between macro and microevolution and figure out DNA strands and all this so I have all the answers. That's not what the book of Acts says. Uh, keep your place in Acts chapter 6, but flip over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. What you see is that Stephen had patience to listen and refute with wisdom. You know, the simplest way to do that is you know Jesus and you know your Bible. And I did not say, quote a bunch of Bible verses at people. I said, you know your Bible, so you know what it means. And you know what Jesus called you to. And you know how to live in wisdom, in the Spirit, like Jesus called his apostles to. In Philippians 4.8, the Apostle Paul says this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, which means if you see any excellence in that, if there is anything worthy of praise, if you see anything worthy of praise like that, think about these things. Now, sometimes as Christians, we think that the church should be the center of society, that all people should come to us for wisdom. The problem is we don't live out the wisdom that we say that we have. We say we know these things, but we don't actually live those out in our lives. Now, there was a time in America where that was probably partially true. I don't think that's true anymore that people come to the church for wisdom, but it's really not true in the first century. And this is why Jesus keeps telling his disciples, I am going to send you out. The wisdom that you say you have is supposed to be lived out there. Go live that out there. What are they supposed to talk about when they're sent out? The story of the gospel and how it is their story and how it is your story. In the book called together, they say the gospel is the good news that Jesus had defeated sin, death, and evil through his own death and resurrection and is making all things new, even us. When we live out the gospel in our lives, it's simply living out with wisdom the understanding of our salvation that we live out our redemption through Jesus. 
And Paul says, so whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, if there's any excellence or anything worthy of praise, think about those things. It is not about circling the wagons while the world burns. It's not batting down the hatches. The world's going down and maybe we'll survive and come back to the top. It's not stick your head in the sand and ignore the pain of the world. The verse in Philippians is a call to live like Stephen in the world, in the spirit, in the same wisdom as Stephen, speaking, proclaiming, defending, living in the gospel. Jesus says in John 17, 18, as you sent me into the world, as the Father sent Jesus into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So he has sent us into the world. This is where Jesus has sent all of us, all of us. And you may have opposition to the message, and it may be from a whole bunch of different sources that come together, but you live in the wisdom and the grace of that. When Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, and he says, think about what those words actually mean is you count the cost of something. You, you compute it. Like if, if you have three apples and I eat one, how many apples do you have? Okay, so like four of you. Okay, if you have ten cookies... And I eat eight of those cookies. How many cookies you got? There you go. Okay, you went right up to the first grade. Got it. Okay, so this is computing, computing something. Paul is calling them to give themselves to the gospel and to count the cost of the gospel. You count the cost in your life. You look at whatever is true and whatever is honorable and whatever is just and whatever is pure and whatever is lovely and whatever is commendable. And then if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, you figure out where do those things come from? They come from redemption that God has first given to you. They belong to him, and now they belong to you, and you begin to live in those things. Paul speaks of the true and the honorable and the just and the pure and the lovely and the commendable, and he connects it with anything worthy of praise. And that all reflects back to those six things you just talked about. Paul uses these words, excellent and worthy of praise. Those are words borrowed from Greek moralism. They are not Hebrew words. They're not words that you find really any other place in Paul's writing. What he isn't doing is he's encouraging these Philippian believers to take the best of their Greco-Roman heritage, the best of the culture that they are in, in light of the gospel and the cross, and live it out in such a way that people will see and know Jesus. Paul calls them to do this because he wants them to embrace God's common grace given to the work in our surrounding society. He's saying, forget what people who live in fear tell you. Trust Jesus first. And as we embrace those good things, we do it with discernment and common sense because we see it through a gospel lens. And this could be anything in our culture from movies to music to art, whatever it is. But the gospel is always at the core of our evangelism and disciple-making. And I tell you this because about Paul and relate it to Stephen because I think what happens in the next two chapters not only deeply affected the church, I think it deeply affected the Apostle Paul. Like Spider-Man, his Uncle Ben dies, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. That's like Spider-Man's motto. Superman, in, in the good telling of the stories, you know, his, his dad's death kind of propels him into this idea of protecting people. What you will see is Stephen, who is a Hellenist. He is a Greco-Roman Jew who became a believer in Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to be directly responsible for the death of Stephen. And I think it shaped much of his Christian life. I believe Paul's first true exposure to the gospel is what you will hear next week in Stephen's message when Stephen gives his first and his probably last sermon. I mean, like Stephen and Paul, we cannot limit our vision of what the church is to some walls that we sit in on a Sunday morning or traditional categories. We must see God and what he is doing in the world and the peace that he brings. 
And this is how Stephen refuted the synagogue's arguments against Jesus. He does it with this understanding of the gospel and what it has done and living in the peace and the redemption and the grace that Jesus brings. Flip back over to Acts chapter 6. It says, uh, 6 verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So just like they couldn't put Jesus on trial for what he did or what he said, they had to make things up. They do that with Stephen as well. Whether they misrepresented what Stephen said, misquoted what he said, or outright lied, they bring charges against him. So much so that not only are the religious leaders in a tizzy about it, but also the people are get to be in a tizzy about it. Because whoever can speak most passionately, that's who we seem to believe, and it's a problem. Verse 12, it says, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. All the different guys who don't like the church and don't really like each other are going to come together and lie and tattle and go take Stephen to the council. That's just how it happened with Jesus. This council is called the Sanhedrin. We've talked about it in Acts a couple of times. The Sanhedrin is a group that claimed all jurisdiction in religious matters in Israel. And think about this. In Matthew 2, when Jesus is born... King Herod, when he wants to go kill Jesus, he goes to this council. Where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Where's the king of the Jews, right? And they tell him. I mean, this group seems like to never stop. They're out in the scriptures trying to kill Jesus. And they start trying to kill his followers as well. And they produce false witnesses. Uh, verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. How does Stephen respond to these lies and these charges against him? Think about this. How would you respond? Fine, eat your moose turd pie. I mean, how, how would you respond to that? Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That is peace. It doesn't mean his face is like brilliant white and he's got wings coming out of his back. Angel! No, it means that he had this, this peace. He defends the gospel with grace, with the peace of knowing who the truth really is. Stephen doesn't get all bent out of shape and yell over people to silence them as if they weren't valuable. He listened, he reasoned, and he defended. As I will tell you this, the longer you live following the gospel, living for Jesus in your life, you will hear more and more things, whether it's from movies or TVs or books or friends or, or co-workers or whatever. You're going to hear start things like, God's dead, heaven's a lie, oh, that Jesus, I guess you need the crutch. I don't, and people will mock and belittle and insult and hate and have vehemence. How will you respond? Stephen, face like an angel. And don't get me wrong, okay? That, that's not like some, some fake, phony smile plastered on his face, you know, like, like he's the joker up on trial or something like that. That's not what it's like. I mean, it, true peace becomes, because comes Stephen knows who the Prince of Peace really is. I mean, Stephen will speak with passion. In the next chapter, you'll see that passion and the strength. He doesn't just take a beating to take a beating for a beating's sake. He lived and he spoke for Jesus, and whatever happened in his life happened because he trusts Jesus first. I mean, think about this. Stephen, brand new deacon. Oh, we've chose seven of you. Yay, I'm a deacon. You're going to die tomorrow. Yay. I'm a, you know, holy cow. How, would you, how do we respond when living out the gospel is this hard? What we will do is usually the right, write the people off who are yelling at us or we'll give up on something in our life or we'll give up on Jesus or all of those things. What happens when someone in your life has an argument you don't know the answer to? 
What happens when something happens in the world that you can't explain? Oh, if God is so good, why is there evil in the world? Why does evil happen? What happens if your life implodes and just gets destroyed, like Stevens is going to end in death? You must ask, have you really understood the gospel of God's peace? And does it carry you through those times? Is it just something you say you believe, or do you actually believe it? In our culture today, you are taught that if God loves you, everything is easy. It's like Jesus is the easy button, like staples in Jesus, like easy. Too bad it didn't work for Jesus. I got to go to the cross. It's not working. My easy button's not, not working. And people will say things, oh, when God wants something in your life, you know, it just works out. I've had people say, oh, it must be God because everything just fell into place. And sometimes that's true, okay? Sometimes that's true when it's beautiful when it happens. But it's also a very bad theological position to stand on. Because you can go down today and lie to your doctor and get a medical marijuana card. That's easy. You can go down to half places in town and buy heroin or cocaine. That's easy. You can hop on your computer and look at porn on the internet. That's easy. Does it make it right? No, it doesn't. There are people who I've met who have said, oh, this is really hard. God must not be in it. That is nowhere in the Bible. In fact, a lot of times when God is actually in it, it gets so hard that you don't even see the end from the beginning and you're stuck in the middle of it. Why? Because God wants us to trust him and not ourselves. I mean, think about something as simple as Element trying to find a permanent home. I mean, we've been, you know, we've been talking about you know, the building that we're going to build so we have a place to actually be for a long time. Now, we were supposed to break ground in January. I mean, we're hoping to break ground by the end of June. We're getting a little freaked out about this, okay? But, but everybody's always like, so what's your plan B? You know, it's like, like God didn't see this happening. Whatever happens is still God's plan A. It's like, I just didn't see it because I don't see the beginning. But he does. And no matter what happens in the mystery, we trust him. We trust him with all of our lives when we don't understand what's going on. This is the heart of the gospel that he has rescued and he has redeemed us. In this, Stephen is going to be killed. Why is Stephen going to be killed? People's sins, but also God's purposes. God will use their sin to bring about his purpose to move the church forward. Think about this. Are you willing to live and die for the gospel of Jesus Christ? A lot of people, this used to be the big question years ago. You're willing to die for Jesus. Tell you what, I'm really willing to die for Jesus because that's easy, right? Boom, I'm dead. Sweet, works over, right? Living for him, that's the hard part. Are you willing to live for Jesus? Are you willing to live out the things that you say you believe day by day by day by day, even when it's hard, where you trust in his grace and you live in his peace and you live in the wisdom that he provides? Do you find such peace in Jesus that no matter what happens, you are all in for him? I think this is why Luke writes what he does about Stephen. The face of an angel. Luke is reminding you who Stephen himself trusted in. Stephen didn't, didn't trust in himself. Stephen trusted in Jesus. Stephen knew that the people who were all against him, that their war wasn't really with him. It was with God. And Stephen loved God more than anything else, so he was willing to tell them more and more about the gospel. Show them who God was, even if it killed him, which eventually it does. God never once forsook Stephen. He used Stephen to spread his church out so the world would know. And Stephen was like Jesus by the power of God's spirit, and that's the only way that happens. And the amazing thing is it can happen for you, too. And I know in a lot of churches, when they when you call you to, hey, do you want to be a Christian? You want to follow Jesus? It's like, everything's great. Here's my call. You might die. You might die. But your life has purpose and hope and meaning because it has been redeemed 
defy the God who made everything. God who sees us running headlong into our sin and says, I'm going to provide a way out for that. This is why we talk about communion every week. It's why you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and I. Because we no longer have to pay for our sin. Because Jesus paid for our sin. Why? To bring us back into relationship with God and each other again. He rises to new life to call us to live in the hope of his grace and his peace. He rescues, he redeems, he puts everything in our lives how it needs to be to move us forward into who he calls us to be. This is the beauty of the gospel. We must understand that as we live in the beauty of the gospel, sometimes things will come up and they will be hard. Sometimes your life will fall apart and implode, usually by decisions that you made. But that doesn't mean that God is not going to come back in and lift you up and carry you through the midst of that. Because he loves us. And sometimes you will be in situations where people will just come against you because of your faith in the gospel. What do you do? What do you do? You don't yell. You don't get all bent out of shape. Because their war is not with you. It's with the goodness and the grace that God's providing. So you continue with peace to speak the gospel. And to love them how God loves them. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back if you need prayer. I mean, maybe you know, your life has fallen down around you and you want to live in the hope and the grace of the gospel. They would love to pray with you about that. Maybe you're in a position where you have a friend whose life isn't floating around them. And you want to talk to them about the gospel. You just don't really know how. Well, they'd love to pray with you about that. Begin to, to talk through those things. I mean, the way that most people are, are going to see what the gospel is like is when people see how you walk through and handle the difficult situations that come into you, your life. Do you live in peace or do you melt down? I mean, are, are you like my dog when the cat drinks her water? And the dog's like, what is going on over there? Do you melt down? Or is it like, you know what? I trust Aaron. He can put more water in the bowl. It's going to be cool. Right? God is God. We trust him for all things. That is why we don't have to freak out. That is why even the scriptures say that we don't mourn like everybody else mourns because our hope is in Jesus. We must be a people who live in the peace and the grace and the goodness of the gospel. They're offering boxes inside while on the back and we give because God gives so much, so much to us. Giving is part of our worship so you have the opportunity every week. We don't pass the plate, it's response. And there's food in the back, grab something to eat. Maybe go through some of the questions uh, with some friends this week. You know, get to know somebody a little bit better over a piece of coffee cake, whatever's back there. You know, and, and start to go a little bit deeper in this. You know, what, what, what meaningless debates do you get in? But then also in the end, you know, what, what is the most important thing that you can talk about, which is the gospel? And how do you do that in a real, true way? You know, without being a big weirdo, how do you actually begin to speak about these things? How do you show these things forth in your life that God's got you? He's got you. You can trust him. Even when it all falls apart, you can trust him because it has been sifted through his hands because he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live and walk in your grace. That we would understand your deliverance of us and the hope that you have provided, that we would live in the peace that you bring. 
and even if five, twenty, a million groups stand against us, that it wouldn't destroy our peace. That if things happen in our lives that we don't understand, that it would not destroy our peace because our peace is found in you. That we would understand that you are the one who holds us. That you are the one who has loved us. Teach us to speak the truth and the hope of the gospel in our relationships in ways that make sense. That our hearts and our lives would truly and fully be yours. And that we wouldn't just say it, we would actually live it. And that you would be lifted up above all things and gain great glory as your people live in great joy. We ask that the truth of your gospel would invade and permeate all that we are. So we live in the hope of who you are. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.